I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech Show, a podcast about what we work on, not what it feels like to be a woman in tech. For more information about the show, go to wit.fm. Intel Corporation is one of the largest semiconductor chip manufacturers in the world. Since then, it has expanded and built technologies in other domains. Homa Avidi, Senior Director of AI Software Products at Intel, talked about the semiconductor and the microprocessor. We also talked about technologies developed in the artificial intelligence and machine learning areas. In the end, Huma explained her path to an engineering manager role. Huma Abidi, welcome to the Women in Tech Show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. You work at Intel as a senior director of AI software products. Mm-hmm. Intel is a company that has been around since 1968. It's one of the largest semiconductor chip manufacturers, among other things. Mm-hmm. For people that don't know, can you give some context on semiconductors and their importance? Sure. So semiconductors are materials which have uh, these special electric properties and because of which they are used to make electronic components like transistors. And transistors are nothing but, you know, basically tiny electric switches. So the most common and widely used semiconductor is silicon. And silicon, as you may know, is the chemical element found in sand. But at Intel, we build semiconductor integrated circuits, which means it contains a lot, a lot of transistors that are connected together. So, for example, a Pentium chip, uh, which was, I believe, uh, introduced in 93, had about 3 million transistors. But uh, the Xeon third-generation scalable processor that we just released has over 8 billion transistors. So these transistors, basically, how does it connect to CPUs and microprocessors? I can talk about that if you would like me to. Yes, and mainly what I'm trying to get out of this is to illustrate its importance in the modern world in computers, etc. So yeah, if you could do that. Exactly, as you said, the microprocessor, the integrated circuit, that can perform all the computation. That is also the CPU, and it's the heart of a computer. I mean, the we call it Silicon Valley, right? Because of the semiconductors are, you know, it's basically the most common semiconductor is silicon. And that's used to make microprocessor, which is the heart of any computer or, you know, your smartphone or your laptop. And microprocessors can be embedded in any devices, which may not even look like computers. I mean, in your cars or your household appliances. So no matter what computation you use, essentially it's, it's the semiconductor that is used to make these microprocessors, which, as I mentioned, is the heart of a computation device. Specifically at Intel, as I mentioned before, you're focused on artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. Before we get into the role of AI with Intel and the kind of things Intel is doing, can you explain what artificial intelligence is? Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, the definition continues to evolve. But fundamentally, AI is uh, the best definition that I can think of and we have been using is the ability of machines to learn from experience without explicitly programming. And most importantly, in order to perform functions that are associated with human intelligence or human mind. So basically, you are making machines do something that a human would be doing. 
but the beauty of it is that we are not actually programming it. So that's what most computer programs do, right? You actually write a program and you ask computer and they will do this. But in AI, it is learning on its own. And, you know, machine learning, deep learning are subsets of that. But essentially, it's without its learning aspect of it is what it makes it unique. Can you talk now about the role of artificial intelligence in Intel? As we were talking earlier, Intel makes semiconductors and then transistors, microprocessors, all this domain so what is the role of AI in all this? Sure, and I wanted to add on to that, that there's AI and then there's machine learning, which is a you know subset of AI. So we do a lot of work in both machine learning and most importantly, deep learning. So just to add on to what I had said, and then I will mention the role because we do both in machine learning and analytics and all that. So in machine learning, it's a category that includes algorithms that again, improve with exposure to say more data over time. And there are regression, classification, those kind of things. And in the deep learning, which uses layered neural networks and uses computer vision and speech, etc. So coming to your question, which is a great question, that role of AI at Intel. And basically, I would start from the fact that AI has been around for a long time, but only in the past few years, sort of the deep learning breakthroughs that happened. And that, and also I should not forget to mention the availability of data, compute power, algorithms, that basically led to this huge digital transformation in the tech industry. And Intel, like other companies, in fact, and I would say Intel is a leader in, as a data-centric company. So naturally, we are, uh, you know, moving forward with this. And I personally also, you know, was working on optimizations. And as soon as this became possible, I got into AI and can talk about that later. But coming back to your question about what is the role of AI at Intel. So I would start with, you know, driving innovations. You know, AI basically uses a lot of compute. The compute requirements are humongous for AI. And so we are doing both on the hardware as well as software. We, at Intel, we have a you know, huge hardware and, a, and software portfolio. So we make sure on the hardware side, from device to edge to data center, we have the right hardware. You know, we have CPUs, we have general purpose CPUs, we have uh, GPUs, we have FPGAs, we have vision processing units. So on hardware side, we have what it takes to support. And on the software side as well, we do a lot of, you know, we have libraries, math kernel libraries for deep neural network, it's called 1DNN. On Python side also, we have libraries and then we have framework optimizations as well as a model zoo and things that can be used for any persona, for a data scientist, for a library developer, for application developers. So my point is that we made sure that our hardware we have the hardware has the capability to run these AI workloads. But along with that, and that's what I work on, is a lot of software to support it, to make sure that the performance on this hardware is the best. So we are driving all of AI innovations. We also do, you know, basically one interesting thing is uh, with Intel is that we do hardware software co-design. Because on the hardware, as I mentioned, we have, we are adding features such as DL boost, low precision, and then on the software side, we are making sure that it performs very well. So we have engineers who work with the hardware architects to make sure that whatever new instructions are being added, we have the software to support it and then you get the best performance. 
so the role that of AI is extremely important at, at Intel. I mean, we call it data-centric company and both hardware side, software side, we are doing, and it's also a growing business. I mean, there are billions that are attributed to AI and it continues to grow. So at the beginning, you mentioned artificial intelligence can be thought of as the ability of machines to learn from experience. Then you're talking about the subsets of artificial intelligence, which are two of them are machine learning and deep learning. And you're talking about data. Data is involved in these approaches, which I gather this is what you mean by experience. Like machines learn from experience. In this case, is through data, right? Absolutely. So training, the more data you feed in, that's why all these biases, I, this morning I had a talk and where we were talking about, you know, women, why it is important for women to be, I, I know I'm digressing, but I'll just take a minute to explain why data is so important. So if, for example, you know, the infamous hiring tool, which had to be stopped because it was trained using data, which only contained good, can showed good candidates as men. And so women applicants were being rejected because the data that it used to train did not have samples of good candidates as women. So as you said very accurately, the data is in the center of all of this. So absolutely. And you also highlighted the importance of the hardware for running machine learning models and deep learning models and how it's also important optimizations around this. What is it about the nature of machine learning and deep learning that you have a focus on hardware how efficient it can run them. So as I mentioned that compute requirements are big. I mean, so you need, you need a lot of compute power in order to run these days. The kind of, and these days you have, you know, more and more data, the more data you need to, so there's two things, right? There's training and then there's inference. When you are training, you need as much data as possible and the more data you feed in, the more accurate your models would be. And for that, you need a lot of compute power. But for inference, which is when you use it, it can be done on your smartphone. It doesn't necessarily have to have that. Now, depending on what is more important. So sometimes your application requires low power. Sometimes latency is more important. So depending on what is more important, that is the kind of hardware that that's the reason we have this whole series of a portfolio of hardware that you can have a small vision processing unit, uh, Movidius stick that we have. Or you can have a, you know, a whole, uh, we are building GPUs, you can have GPUs for a specific things where it's more using graphics or image processing or video processing. Or you have, right now our Xeons are, are performing wonderfully for both training and inference. Yes, and some of the ones you mentioned was CPU, you just mentioned GPU, which is more focused on graphics. And there's also FPGA, can you also talk about the difference between these a little? Sure. So CPUs are more general purpose, as I said, that they are the instruction set is basic and not specifically a target for video processing, but uh, the Xeon processors, because we are using, adding all of these DL boosts and other features, we have been successfully using that. So there, as I said, CPU is very general purpose. And GPU is, uh, again, as uh, mentioned, that you know, video processing needs have grown and there's more and more graphics and 3D is, you know, pretty standard these days. So video processing in software is basically the CPU inside a computer can offload video processing to, say, GPU also oftentimes because GPU, GPU is more specialized design 
and very efficient at manipulating graphics and image processing. FPGA, however, is different and that is, it's a processor design that can be put on a reconfigurable chip. It's called field programmable gate array. So the functionality is not hard coded, but it can be changed. And they can be the best part about FPGA is that it can be configured many times, you know, depending on bug fixes, improvements and all that. So that's slightly different and a lot of times it's used when the latency, low latency requirement is required, but they are expensive. So they all have uh, different uses, but they're all, you know, important for specific things. So I would say CPU or Xeon processor, for example, are the most general purpose and right now all most of our AI workloads are running there. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier also that the hardware component is very important, which is what we've been talking about, but also the software one, which is the one that you are focusing on a lot at Intel. Yes, yes. Is this related to the workflow of developing software in artificial intelligence? Yeah, that's actually a very good observation that indeed. So because anything at Intel, we have, you know, there's basically multiple levels of workflows. So the lowest would be, you know, at the library level that they are very close to the hardware. And we have, as I mentioned, hardware software co-design where hardware architectures, architects work with the hardware team software architects and hardware architects work together. And so, the, for example, building math kernel libraries. These are, you know, at a very low level library that is happening. And the persona for that are, you know, framework developers and others who can use that. So that's the lowest level that you have. One DNN, one DAL, one CCL, these are the libraries that we have. And at the next level, so the next level would be the frameworks that are available. So now we also contribute a lot to the open source framework, deep learning framework. So, so TensorFlow, we work very closely with Google, PyTorch, we work with Facebook, uh, MXNet, we work with Amazon. So what our role, my team uh, has been working on is optimizing these for Intel hardware. So we want to make sure that all these frameworks that are widely used and that they are already very popular, open source, we contribute a lot to that. And we want to make sure that our customers and our work and all the AI workloads work perform best on Intel hardware. And the lastly, we also have application developers. So the, the third level would be that, you know, we have many tools, we have analytics zoo, we have model zoo where we have these pre-trained models that we put out there and people can essentially use that. And we have also have low precision quantization tools. So basically what I'm trying to say is that there are multiple levels of workflows or multiple levels libraries or frameworks or tools depending on what the user is going to use. And also I would like to mention that in the software development lifecycle, we start development from the pre-silicon technical readiness TR lifecycle when the hardware TR is happening, when then we setting requirements, hardware software co-design, then there's early silicon validation testing happens, then there's software emulators, and finally we fine-tune optimizations. So it's not, the advantage of having hardware part of the portfolio is that we get, the software team gets involved from the design phase of the hardware. And that's why, you know, you come up with a great design. Yes, that's something that I've been hearing about in the last few years, at least, where now 
what happened was we already had GPUs, but then suddenly AI and machine learning and deep learning started being more popular and people found they could run it in GPUs. But now what we're seeing is what you just said, running these kind of systems is influencing the kind of hardware that we are going to focus on building now, right? Because we're optimizing. The other thing you mentioned was the different layers of the workflow. We're talking about how existing popular libraries can be optimized specifically for hardware. In this particular case, we're talking about Intel hardware. We also have the layer of app developers and tooling around this and analytics, etc. One other thing that you mentioned is pre-trained models. Can you give an example of the role of a pre-trained model or what can people do with a pre-trained model? Sure. So and let's talk about the models, right? The What are the popular models that we are working on? So basically, we have CNNs, which are computer vision, and then we have lots of customers, you know, they're using that for, using, say, TensorFlow, for example. So we have CNN models, we have RNNs, which are uh, recurrent neural networks, uh, or NLP, natural language processing. So that's another sort of thing. Then you have recommendation reinforcement GANs. So there's variety of use cases that we have. And so if we put a pre-trained model, and containers are also very popular. So we have already, it takes a lot to train a model, right? It needs a lot of compute power and the data set and all of that. So if you already have a pre-trained model that has been trained, then people can basically take advantage of that and run their, do inference with that, or if they needed to train, they can you know even train it. But having a pre-trained model saves them a lot of time and resources to basically you know have a trained model which has converged because convergence takes a lot of effort. So we do that, and Google also has a, it's called Garden Flow, I think. So we also put our models there, but there, Intel has its own uh, model zoo. Which, which we have about, I think right now we have about 40 trained models in those different categories that I have mentioned, that computer vision or natural language processing. So we make it easy for people to just use those models and they can use it for their use cases. Before we move on to other topics, one last thing that I wanted to talk about is I saw one of the specific software products that is being developed is called one API. So I'm kind of curious about this. Can you give an overview of what it is? Sure. So one API is um, something that we've been working with the industry. So we I can call it that it's a industry initiative. And it's basically a unified programming model. And it's intended to simplify development across different architectures. So the reason it's it's important and needed is because Diverse workloads, they need, you know, different kind of computer architecture. And if you don't have a unified and simplified programming across different architectures, then you would have very fragmented software offerings. So the whole idea is to have, number one, have an open industry initiative so that, uh, you know, everybody's behind it and then create basically a whole programming model so that it supports you know, all the things that I mentioned, CPU, GPU, FPGA. So this is a common thing that's across, as the name indicates, one API. The API is common across all different architectures and gives a unified solution, which is also accepted by industry. 
we've been talking a little bit about the various components in artificial intelligence systems. I know this is a super broad area and we only have so much time to, you know, talk about everything. One thing kind of deviating a little bit the conversation is this whole notion that we started hearing about, which is ethics in artificial intelligence. From your opinion, what does this mean when we talk about this? So I think it's one of the most important things that people should be focusing on. And I'm really happy to see that it is getting the attention that it needs. And we have human-centered AI like Stanford had, Fifi Lee has created, and, and almost everybody is talking about it because it's extremely important. I mean, I can just give endless examples. And I gave one example at the beginning of this conversation, the hiring bias tool against women, or another one that also I had used this morning was this word embedding, which is used in natural language processing. And it was trained on Google News articles, but it shows very, very clear male-female gender stereotype. And if you say man is to computer programming, it says woman is to homemaker. So the bias is in, I mean, enormous, especially these days with Black Lives Matters and other things that are happening. AI is such a powerful tool that it has to have very, very clear, you know, fairness and ethics and compliance and transparency, explainability. I mean, this is a whole <laughs> talk for an hour. We can talk about it. But essentially, I think it's one of the most important things. And the good thing that is happening across the board is that it's not just computer science scientists that are part of it. There are economists or philosophers or doctors, neuroscientists, policymakers. Everybody is getting together to make sure that this is handled properly. Otherwise, this is then, I mean, already we are seeing so many use cases. So it is at the heart of AI. It's not something I'm working on. I am, I mean, everybody is, but you know, my focus is more software optimization, but I think it's one of the most, most important things that we should focus on. Yeah, and this is an area that it's just gotten more exposure and more importance. And I know that one thing, the companies themselves you know, can decide to take a look at this, but you're also describing it at an even broader scale where we're starting seeing people outside of the companies developing these systems talk about these issues. And you're also talking about, you know, potential policies and that kind of stuff, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. You're right. Before we finish, I want to talk now a bit about your trajectory. I saw that you, at some point in your career, transition to engineering manager. Can you talk about your path to transition at that time? Certainly. So I joined Intel as a recent college graduate, you know, as soon as I finished my master's, Intel was my first job and it's been, you know, more than two decades and I'm still there. So I joined in the compiler team and I was responsible for compiler building and validation. And I think about four to five years Later, I became an engineering manager for validation team. So it happened organically. I mean, I was a high performer and I was doing things and I became a lead first. And then there was an opportunity to grow the team. And so I was asked if I would be willing to be a manager. And, and I was mentoring people and it was, seemed like a natural thing to do. And I was happy to do it. So since then, I have been manager and engineering manager, senior engineering manager, director, senior director, and, you know, the path I took on the manager 
Yes, and you're mentioning first you became a lead and then later a manager. What is the difference between lead and manager from your experience? So lead or a mentor is kind of... Uh, so manager has a huge responsibility, right? Manager is responsible for your career, your pay grade and your promotion. And, and, and basically you have all of that. And lead is like an informal mentor that, that, you know, once in a while. So two things. Mentor, I'll say first and then I'll say lead. So mentor is like I always had, especially women mentees. And also I did have mentors also. So mentor is, you know, helping you out once in a while. But manager has a very, very serious role and responsibility. I mean, you're responsible for that person's career. You want to make sure they have the support that is needed. You want to make sure they are doing well, all, you know, of how they're performing, what's the next path, what is there, what, where should they fit in, whether, you know, all kinds of things. So if you are a lead of a team, you are more focused on the, technical aspects that I making sure that this is where we are leading this person had this job to do they finished the job and so on but I'm not concerned about you know their career path and you know how they are performing or their family or whatever so manager's role is much more different than a leads but it's the right way to move to a manager you have to be technically competent and you have to have that respect of the people that they they know that I should understand if as a manager I should understand what my team is team members are doing and so one aspect of that is being a lead or a mentor and then the next step would be to become a manager what are some examples of things that you would recommend somebody that is currently what we call an individual contributor where you just building things writing software but that they want to transition to a manager at some point like what would you say could be things that they can start doing within their team to show that experience? Absolutely. So I would say first thing they should do is let their manager know. Because there's a proper training, there's a lot of training that's at, at least an Intel that in order to be your first line manager or next line manager, there's a lot of training that Intel provides for managers. So firstly, you should let your manager know that this is something that I'm interested in. So they would, number one, they would make sure that you, you know, you are on that path, you are getting that training. And secondly, you know, when the opportunity comes, they would do that. So that's one. The second is you need to show leadership, right? If you want to manage people, you should be, you know, leading in some way, whether it's a small, you know, technical group or you need to, that's how you lead to a manager, right? It's not that one day, in my career, many people have told me, I want to be a manager and I would say, not right now, but, you know, have you hired an intern? Why don't you work with an intern and show that, you know, you can manage that and how have you led that? And later on, pretty much everybody became a manager towards the end, in a couple of years or whenever. So I know that these people are interested in manager. On the flip side, it has also happened that I have told people that I, I would like you to be a manager. Like, no, no, I'm happy with the lead. I will be on the principal engineer track, but managing is not for me. I said, okay, that's, that's fine. So if you are interested in becoming a manager, you should let your manager know you should be showing leadership qualities. You should be a mentor of somebody. You can, you can hire an intern if that uh, your company allows. Uh, we also have dot projects. In, so there are many, many projects that happen where you can show leadership or you can show mentorship informally being a manager to somebody else. So you, know, you need to exhibit those qualities in order to be a manager. Exactly. The other thing that could be possible, I'm thinking, is if you think maybe you don't have the opportunity in your company, like there are no interns and that kind of stuff, you can always 
look outside and volunteer, yep. try to lead some club or something, right? Excellent point, because that gives you experience already, right? And yeah, 100% right. You should be, you know, there's so many opportunities to volunteer. And yeah, yeah great point. One other thing I want to talk about is you're talking about a lot of the responsibilities of a manager. Some of them are related to looking at the careers of the direct reportees and handling promotions, those kind of things. In what ways do you measure people's performance? Another great question. So at Intel, it is sort of uniform and formal, but there are three categories. So one is that you look at the results, which are very measurable, that this is what you were supposed to do. And this is revised, right, every time that you check back and all. So that's very, very clear that it's measurable, right? The second one is that the, what are the Intel values and cultures that are you conforming to that, that there is inclusiveness, one Intel, and, you know, those kind of things that are also many ways measurable, but it's, you have to show that you are part of the culture you are sharing things with other you are inclusive you are performing truth and transparency so that's an equal thing and the third one is uh, growth that you know are you showing a growth that you are supposed to so you could be performing well but hey you need to move forward you need to show progress you need to if you're a manager it's a different way if it's a principal engineer you have to have patterns and you have to have papers written if you're a manager your team should be performing so it's not just one thing you have to have uh, your results measurable results then you have to have your values and you have to show your growth well Huma thank you for taking the time to come on the show sure I really had a good time these are great questions right now I really had a good time thank you so much